Many of you have something like this at home, don't you? You have some colored pictures and you have it marked, marked well. And I look at this calendar here in September, the one date that just steps out, at least especially at this time, is out of thin air, that wonderful series of meetings that we're going to be having soon. And so we think of a calendar as something we mark because we want to remember very important events in our lives or someone else's life or our church life. And I've expressed to you, as we've been talking about the seven feasts of Israel, that in a sense, God has a calendar. And his calendar is the seven feasts of Israel. And we spent some time, the last time I was with you, and shared with you the first parts, the spring feast of Israel. I gave you a little handout, and I invited you to put that in your Bibles. I'm not going to quiz you and say, did you put those in your Bibles? But just in case you did not receive one of those outlines, our deacons are ready. Raise your hand if you would, so you'll have one. If you don't open your Bibles, if you don't find it there, and we still have a few extras, we'll have the deacons hand them to you. And you remember, I mentioned that there were two feasts that were outlined in God's calendar. And there were two sets of feasts. That is the spring feast and the autumn feast. And the spring feast, as you recall, spoke of events that would take place at the advent of Jesus Christ. And then there were the autumn feast. And these autumn feasts spoke of last day events associated with the Lord's second coming. And today we're going to focus our attention as we open the Word of God. Did you bring your Bibles with you? We're going to focus on the autumn feast. And so as we go to our Bibles, I want you to notice how these autumn feasts were kept. We'll just pinpoint a few key points. And then we'll note from the Bible, the Word of God, how they were fulfilled. Salvation, type to anti-type. And so let us go to our Bibles to Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, Leviticus chapter 23 in the Old Testament. And I would ask you again that you would keep a bookmark in Leviticus 23 because we're going to look at Leviticus 23. We'll look at the type and then we'll go back into the New Testament, forward in the New Testament, and we'll notice the anti-type, the fulfillment of each one of these feasts. Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, and we'd like to look now at verse 24. This is the first of the autumn feast mentioned here in Leviticus 23, verse 24. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of, what does it say there? Blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. Now, we already know that that little expression, a holy convocation, means that it was held on a ceremonial Sabbath could be on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. could be any time. It could even be on the seventh-day Sabbath, which would be then called a high Sabbath. But this feast, the first feast of the autumn feast, is called the Feast of Trumpets. And those of you that are marking your Bibles, I'd like to have you circle blowing of trumpets. Blowing of trumpets. And one of the things that the Feast of Trumpets had to do with among many things, was that of the blowing of trumpets. And the children of Israel knew something about the blowing of trumpets. It wasn't something unusual for them. They knew about the blowing of trumpets. In fact, what happened was that if they had an assembly meeting, if they needed to come together, the trumpets would blow. If war was declared, the trumpets would blow. 
if they were moving from one place of the wilderness to another place in the wilderness, the trumpets would blow. If they were to announce a very, very special event, the trumpets would blow. The children of Israel knew about the blowing of the trumpets. But once a year, once a year, there was a special time of the blowing of trumpets. It was known as the Feast of Trumpets. On the seventh month, nearly four months since the spring feast, the trumpets would blow like they never blew any other time of the year. Now, I wanted to get a visual, and I couldn't find one. In fact, I really wanted to get someone here to have them blow the trumpet. And I thought to myself, well, maybe there's someone in our church family that blows a trumpet. And then I did a little bit more Bible study, and I said, oh, it wasn't a metal trumpet that they blew. So who could I find to blow this special trumpet? It was an antelope horn, straight antelope horn carved out, and they blew that trumpet. And it wasn't so much the ram's horn. Oh, no, it was the antelope horn. Well, I couldn't find anybody do that. But So I thought I'd share with you that it was at least an antelope horn that they blew. And on this day, the day of the Feast of Trumpets, the Jews would arise with the sound of the trumpets, and they would say something like this. And I've asked Mark Hersher to share with you what the Jewish people would say. Friends, it's only ten days till the Day of Judgment. Let's be certain to have our house in order. So they would begin to think this. Ten days until the day of judgment. Ten days until the day of atonement. And so they would begin to search their hearts. They begin to pray. They would seek God earnestly during those ten days. Because they wanted to be ready. Ready for the day of atonement. Day of judgment. Now, during those ten days, during the Feast of Trumpet... During those ten days, there was a common greeting among themselves. They would greet each other. I've asked Mike and Dave to demonstrate how do they greet one another during this time, Feast of Trumpets. And I'll give you an opportunity to do that. David, may Yahweh seal you to a good year. Michael, may Yahweh seal you to a good year. Thank you. Amen. Well, what a wonderful greeting there you had. Often when we look forward to a new year, and it's just maybe a week or two before the new year comes, what do we say to one another? We say, Happy New Year, have a wonderful new year. But of the children of Israel, prior to the Day of Atonement, prior to the Day of Judgment, prior to the cleansing of the sanctuary, ten days, during those ten days, as Mike would see Dave, or, or Dave would see Jim, or whoever it was, or Jill would see June, they would express that beautiful thought, May Yahweh seal you to a good year. That was a greeting. You see, they were expressing hope that they might be numbered with the goat of the Lord and accepted in him on the Day of Atonement. And the goat of the Lord represents who? Who does it represent? Jesus Christ. The goat of the Lord represents Jesus Christ, the righteous Messiah whose saving blood is untainted, untainted with sin. Well, as we can see, the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of the Day of Atonement, they're interrelated. One prepares the way for the other. First, the Feast of Trumpets, and how many days? How many days did the Feast of Trumpet take place? Ten days. And then the awesome Day of Atonement. And so when the Jewish people 
heard those trumpets during the Feast of Trumpets, they knew only 10 days, only 10 days more, only 9 days, only 5 days, only 3 days, only one more day until the sacred day of the Jewish year, the Day of Atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement is also called the Day of Judgment or the cleansing of the sanctuary. Our Jewish friends today, and you also know it as Yon, what? Yon Kippur, that's right. Have your Bibles open? Let's go now to Daniel chapter 8. Keep your bookmark in Leviticus 23 and go with me to Daniel the 8th chapter. Daniel chapter 8. Now, if the blowing of the trumpet and the greeting that they had were some of the types that took place on the, uh, during the time of the Feast of Trumpets, well then what and when was the real fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets? What was the real fulfillment? Salvation from type to anti-type. Well, believe it or not, our answers to these questions are found in the prophetic book of Daniel. The prophetic book of Daniel. In fact, Daniel chapters 8 and 9 help us to understand the fulfillment of both the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of the Day of Atonement. We learn that from Daniel 8 and 9. We're going to look at it briefly today. Now, Daniel, the 8th chapter, verse 14. And I would imagine that many of you as Adventist Christians who are familiar with Bible prophecy, you know this one by heart. So I'm going to ask uh, whatever translation you have or if it's in your heart to read it right now with me. These words. And he said unto me, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now hold on to your seats, because in a few moments we're going to learn when the real 10 days of the real Feast of Trumpets took place. And we will find that answer is better understood as we understand the longest Bible prophecy of the entire Bible, known as the 2300-day prophecy. As we understand that better, we'll understand the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. Many of us as Bible students know that one of the principles of Bible prophecy goes like this. Each day for a year. Each day for a year. A lot of scriptures that we can turn to, but I just share that principle with you as a reminder. And that would make the 2,300 days into 2,300 years. And so we would read it like this, Daniel the 8th chapter and verse 14, unto 2,300 years, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So that's Daniel chapter 8, just a snapshot. Now we're going to go over to Daniel chapter 9, and there in Daniel chapter 9, they go hand in hand, Daniel 8 and 9. In Daniel 9, we're going to find a clue as to when the 2300-year prophecy begins, when it begins. You see, if we're going to know when the Feast of Trumpets was fulfilled and when the Day of Atonement was fulfilled, then we need to know, first of all, when the 2300-year prophecy began, and we need to know also when it ended, when it came to the end. And so I want to share with you how we discover those dates very briefly, so prayerfully put on your thinking caps, listen with me as we go to the Word of God. We read in Daniel chapter 9, 
verses 24 and 25, that the Jews were given how many weeks of years? It says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. So 70 weeks added up according to day for year principle adds up to 490 days. It comes up to 490 years. 490 years. I'm going to give you 490 years to go back to Jerusalem and prepare the way for the Messiah to come. I'm going to give you 490 years. And I discovered as I studied Daniel's 8 and 9 that 490 years is not just something out there in the space, but that 490 years is the first part of the 2300-year prophecy. The first part of the 2300-year prophecy, you take 490 years, and that is given to the Jews to get ready for the Messiah to come. Well, at that point, as I looked at verse 25, I asked this question. Well, then, when did the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem take place? And that's noted there in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. And the answer to that question as to when gives to us the beginning date of the 2300-year prophecy. And suffice to say, I'm going to be real brief as to coming to that conclusion, but if you want more information of how to find that date, I'd be glad to talk with you afterwards and give you some material later. But suffice to say, they were commanded to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, and the best date in history, the best date in history, is the year 457 B.C. The year 457 B.C. is the beginning date for the 2300-year prophecy. The beginning date. Now we need to discover the ending date. We know when it began, the 2300-year prophecy, the longest prophecy in the Bible, began in the year 457 B.C. When did it end? We first of all know that this prophecy, the 2300-year prophecy, is the longest prophecy. We know it started in 457, so now we're going to do a little simple arithmetic. You can do it in your head. You can do it on paper. I'm going to look down at my notes, and it goes like this. 2300, take away 457, you come up with what? 1843. 1843. The year 1843. 457 was B.C., and 1843 is A.D., and it's a noted fact that there's one year between B.C. and A.D., so you add one more year, and you come up to what year? 1844. 1844. Listen carefully, friends. In the Old Testament times, during the Feast of Trumpets, the trumpets would blow throughout Israel, warning of the nearness of the approaching of the Day of Atonement, the Day of Judgment, the cleansing of the sanctuary. And I ask you today as Bible students, was there a time in world history when a message was given in trumpet-like tones somewhere in the times of the 1830s up into the early 1840s announcing the time that a judgment would come? Was there a time? Did that actually happen? And the answer is what? Yes, yes, indeed. Beginning in the 1830s and up into 1844, such a message was given to the world in trumpet tones, making it a very important announcement. Now, Mike Flick, would you tell us here, what was this announcement? What was proclaimed during those times over and over again? 
The hour of God's judgment has come. Yes, amen. And so during the 1830s, that's what was being proclaimed. The hour of God's judgment has come. The 1830s into the 1840s. It was almost a household name, William Miller. Not only in America, but also overseas. But William Miller not only was himself preaching this and teaching this, but he had hundreds of other pastors and people preaching it. In fact, some historians claim that more than a million people were involved in the Millerite movement. Preaching the judgment has come. And not only William Miller in North America, but you have Edward Irving in England, and other preachers in Europe were preaching it. And then you have Joseph Wolfe and others who heralded in Asia and other parts of the world. In fact, you may not know this, but more than 80, I repeat, more than 80 students of Bible prophecy had come to their Bibles, studied it, the Holy Spirit led them, and they came to the conclusion, and they weren't talking to one another necessarily. The Holy Spirit was talking to them. They came to the conclusion that something very significant was supposed to happen around 1843 or 1844. Now listen carefully. Since the year 1844, is the antitypical fulfillment. The real 1844 is the real Day of Atonement. That's when it all started. Well, how do we begin? How do we determine the antitypical Feast of Trumpets then? Well, answer, listen carefully, by taking the day for a year prophecy, and this is how you do it. How many days was it that the children of Israel prepared the way for the Day of Atonement? How many days? Ten days, ten days. Those 10 literal days, a day for a year, turn out to be 10 years, 10 years. And so you take 1844, we know that is the time when the real judgment in heaven began, the real day of atonement began. Take that 1844 and go back 10 years, 10 years, and you come to the year, what is it? 1834. Friends, 1834 is the fulfillment, the antitype of the real Feast of Trumpets when it began. Because during those 10 years, from 1834 to 1844, during those 10 years, every civilized nation on this earth heard of this warning message in trumpet-like tones in Revelation, the 14th chapter, and verses 6 and 7. Let me read it to you. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tongue and tribe and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has what? Has come. Amen. Now, those of you that have studied history and William Miller and the 1840s and the judgment and all these things, you have learned that it is a fact of history that William Miller was wrong. He was wrong about what actually happened on 1843, 1844. He was wrong about that. He taught and he thought that the judgment or the cleansing of the sanctuary meant that Jesus was going to come again. He thought that. But the Bible facts are, he was wrong about the event, but he was right about the date. He was right about the date. And so the Feast of Trumpets, friends, has found its fulfillment 
William Miller and 80 plus other Bible students warned the world during those 10 years that something significant was going to take place. And sure enough, sure enough, the second autumn feast, 10 years after the Feast of Trumpets, from 1834 to 1844, came to the real Day of Atonement. The real Day of Atonement. Now let's go to our Bibles, to Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, and verses 27 and 28. Let's see what the Bible has to say about the real Day of Atonement, the feast of the real Day of Atonement. Leviticus 23, 27, and 28. Glad you kept your bookmark there. Follow as I read it. Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by the fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the Day of Atonement, to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. Now there are two phrases I'd like for you to circle. Two phrases, as you have your Bibles open, your pencils handy. Day of Atonement in verse 27, circle Day of Atonement. And then also in verse 27, circle afflict your souls. Two very significant statements. On this day, known as the Day of Atonement, it was a climax of all the other ceremonies of children of Israel. It was a special spiritual day, a day of supreme opportunity, unlike any other day that the children of Israel were to celebrate their feast and of the sanctuary. It was the day, listen carefully, it was the day that the children of Israel were to make manifest their faith in God, to reveal that they were trusting in God. Now, as Bible students, you can see here, as you look at that verse there, it says they were to afflict their souls. And over the years, I remember as a young man, I would read that as an Adventist Christian. Is that what they afflict themselves? Is that what it means? And recently, I said, look this up and understand a little better and look it up in other translations. And the American Standard Version, perhaps one of the closest to the original language in both the Hebrew and the Greek, the American Standard Version is even clearer. Instead of using the words to afflict your soul, it translates it like this, to humble yourself. I like that. That's clear for me. To humble yourself. You see, the Day of Atonement was a day of soul-searching. It was a day of fasting, a day that they would come before the Lord in a spirit of humility and manifest this spirit of humility, this trust that they had in the Lord and that you alone can provide, you alone can save me. One of the ways to express and manifest this spirit of humility was they acted different on that day, they ate different on that day. They even dressed different on that day. This was a day that they want to express and show their at one with him on the Day of Atonement. Their at-one-ment with him. Now, the Day of Atonement was not only the Day of at-one-ment, but it was also the Day of Judgment. Judgment. You see, there were some who did not confess their sins throughout the year, during the daily service. They didn't confess their sins. 
there was no record of their confessed sins in the sanctuary for them. And so when the Day of Atonement came, they did not humble their souls before the Lord and put their trust in the blood of the goat of the Lord. And you know what happened to those people? You know what happened to those people who neglected to repent of their sins and confess their sins and put their trust in the blood of the Lord's goat? The Bible says they were cut off. They were cut off from the camp and left in the wilderness. That's what happened. And so for many, praise the Lord, many on the Day of Atonement, it was, oh, happy judgment day. Oh, happy judgment day. I'm trusting the Lord. I'm living for Jesus. I'm who I claim to be. I'm trusting the Lord's goat. Oh, happy judgment day. But for those who did not repent of their sins, confess their sins, put their trust in the Lord's goat, in his precious blood, it was, oh, unhappy judgment day. Oh, unhappy judgment day. But when the day of atonement was over, and the high priest who represents Jesus Christ would turn, he would face the people with a smile on his face. It was a smile of relief. It was a smile of satisfaction. And in view of what the priest had done as he was in the sanctuary, cleansing the sanctuary, in view of what the priest had done, and in view of what the people had done, their faith in Jesus Christ, their faith in the Lord's goat, in what the priest was doing to the sanctuary, and the people were outside the sanctuary. In view of all of that, the priest could say to the people, as the Day of Atonement came to the end, my dear people, you are free, cleansed from all of your sins in the sight of the Lord. Now we already know that the true antitypical, the true fulfillment of this second autumn feast, the Day of Atonement, began in the year 1844. And so Daniel, the eighth chapter and verse 14 would read like this, Unto 2,300 years, then shall the sanctuary in heaven be cleansed. Friends, enter into the picture. We are now living in the real Day of Atonement. We're living in the last days, friends. And part of our message as Seventh-day Adventist Christians is not alone to uplift the precious righteousness of Jesus Christ, what he has done for us on the cross of Calvary, the foundation of every truth, everything that we think and teach and preach, but also to preach that the same Jesus who came and died on the cross of Calvary rose again and went to heaven and is doing a work for us right now in heaven above, a work of judgment. And so I want to have you listen again one more time. Listen as Ruth Ann reads those awesome words, the first angel's message of Revelation, the 14th chapter, verses 6 and 7. Would you read that for us again, Ruth Ann? Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. In the light of this awesome truth, in the light of what Jesus is doing right now, how should we be living? How should we be living during this antitypical day of atonement? And not only that, how should we look upon Jesus Christ, our high priest in heaven above? Is he for you or is he against you? 
Well, we're going to consider that question, that second question first. Would you go with me in your Bibles to Daniel, the seventh chapter? You're not very far from there. Daniel chapter seven. Here in the seventh chapter of Daniel is before our very eyes a cinerama picture, as it were, of the judgment in heaven, the judgment that takes place just before Jesus comes. The earthly sanctuary service has ended. And now the Godhead, the angelic universe, are doing a very important work in the heavenly sanctuary. And this judgment all began. It all began in the year 1844. Now listen to how the Bible describes this judgment scene. It's awesome. Daniel, the seventh chapter, and we're going to look at verses 9 and 10 as we begin. Daniel 7, 9, and 10. I watched till the thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, and a thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the court was seated, and the books were open. Now, go down with me to verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one, like the Son of Man, coming with clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Those of you that are marking your Bibles, would you circle in verse 13, one, circle one. I want you to catch the picture, the judgment that is happening in heaven as you and I are speaking right now. It is really awesome. It's described right here. The books are open, and the next scene we have here in verse 13, how many actually go into the judgment? How many? One. Now tell me, when the investigative pre-advent judgment comes to your name or my name and considers our case in the great Supreme Court of Heaven, where will you be? Where will I be? Will we be up in heaven, standing before the heavenly court? or down here on this earth, humbling ourselves before the Lord. Well, if you know anything, as I trust you do, about the earthly sanctuary, it gives us a clue there. Here's the clue. The high priest on the Day of Atonement, that Day of Judgment, went into the most holy place, which represents what? Heaven. Represents heaven. And he was doing his special work. Where were God's people, the children of Israel at that time? Were they inside the sanctuary? No, they were outside, and outside represents what? The earth. And so, friends, in the light of that, we are down here on the earth. Now, if we're down here on the earth, then it's very evident that we do not go personally up into the judgment. Well, then how do we go into the judgment? Look at verse 13 again. And I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Now, as you're turning in your Bibles now to Hebrews, the ninth chapter, let me say this. The Bible simply is telling us here that God's people do not go into the judgments in and of themselves. In fact, no one has a life that's good enough no one has a life that is righteous enough to stand in the judgment in themselves. We must look around for another life. We look, must look around for another man, not just any man, but the God-man, Jesus Christ. Amen? 
And we must hide our life in him and go into the judgment in him. And that's why Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way of salvation. And I am the way of salvation. And as you stand in the judgment in me, if you are trusting in me, you have a friend and an advocate in the judgment. Amen? Isn't this good news that the righteousness that saves us is in heaven above in the person of Jesus Christ? We go into the judgment in him, Christ our righteousness by faith. Well, let's read it for ourselves. Hebrews, the ninth chapter, and verse 24. What does it say there? Who would like to read that, maybe? For Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into the heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Is Jesus Christ your Savior? Is Jesus Christ your Lord? Is Jesus Christ your high priest? Christian friends, we have a Christian lawyer up in heaven who's pleading our case, and he's never once lost a case. And if you believe in the Bible, the Word of God, Colossians chapter 2 says, you are complete in him. I love how it says it in Daniel, the seventh chapter, and verse 22 in the New International Version. It describes there the judgment, the judgment that takes place just before Jesus comes up in heaven. And it describes it like this. This judgment is a judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. Isn't that beautiful? Friends, if our trust is in Christ our righteousness by faith, and in response to who he is and what he has done, we are choosing to live for him, then, friends, it's not bad news. The judgment is good news. It is not against us. It's in favor of us. It's in favor of the saints of the Most High. Amen? In the light of who is representing us in the judgment, taking place even as I speak to you this very moment, then my question to you, as we stand in Christ our righteousness, how then should we live? How should we be living during this time of the judgment? During this time of the real day of atonement? Listen, friends, during this hour of God's judgment in heaven, we should not only be uplifting, Adventists should not only be the most and foremost in uplifting Christ or righteousness, but Adventists, because of their focus on Jesus Christ, should be living righteous lives. They should believe if you love him, you will keep his commandments. As you're turning with me to 1 John chapter 4, you see, just as on the Old Testament Day of Atonement, it was a day to humble your souls before the Lord, so it will also be during this time of the real Day of Atonement, coming before the Lord, humbling ourselves before him. Think about this, friends. Why is it that Seventh-day Adventists tend to be a little different than maybe others in general Christendom? What is the reason why Adventists hold high standards as far as maybe what we read? I'll tell you why. It's because we believe we're living in the real Day of Atonement. Why is it that Seventh-day Adventists hold high standards in how we are involved with entertainment? I'll tell you why. It's because we're living in the antitypical Day of Atonement. Why is it that as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we choose to eat and drink differently from maybe most of the world today? Why is it? I'll tell you why. It's because we're living in the real Day of Atonement. Why is it that we choose to wear our clothing differently and rather than showing and revealing to point attention to us but to Jesus Christ? I'll tell you why. It's because we're living in the time of the real Day of Atonement. Now, why do we do these things anyway? Well, for us to ask that question, 
Is this a pre-advent investigative judgment, some kind of works program? Unfortunately, because that's been taught that way, much of the Christian world sees Adventists as very legalistic. But I'm here to tell you and present the judgment in the light of the righteousness of Christ. We do not live this way and choose to high standards because we're trying to be saved. We're living this way because we're already saved in Christ our righteousness. And because he lived for us and died for us, our response is to live for him, to live for him, and to manifest the fact that we are who we claim to be in Jesus during this judgment time. But with all of that said, do you know, do you know what's the clearest, the clearest evidence that you and I know God? Do you know what is possibly one of the clearest evidences that we are ready to go into the judgment? You know what it is? Friends, it's much more than the fact that we are tithe-paying, health-reforming, Sabbath-keeping Adventists. Friends, it's a lot more than that. You know what it is? I want to tell you, as you're turning to 1 John chapter 4, one of the clearest evidence that we are ready to go into the judgment, friends, is shown by our love to one another. 1 John chapter 4. Follow with me as I read from the New International Version of the Bible starting with verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from who? God. Everyone who loves has been born of God. So the evidence that one has been born of God, they will love. How do we know that? Born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Oh, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. Now, go down to verse 16 through 21 with me. And so we know and rely on the love he has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Now, notice this verse, verse 17. Love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of what? Judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. Isn't that awesome? To realize that one of the key evidences that we're going to have boldness in the day of judgment, we have nothing to fear in the day of judgment because we're manifesting the fact that we love God by how we treat one another. There's no fear in love, but perfect love, mature love, drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The man who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this commandment, whoever loves God must also love his brother. How are we doing? Do you and I pass the love test? My Christian friends, In the light of the times we live in, friends, we are living in the real day of atonement. It won't be long until our names will be considered. I want to be at one with God. What about you? I want my sins to be confessed and forgiven. What about you? 
I want to be at peace not only with God, but I want to be at peace with one another. What about you? I want to be ready when Jesus comes. What about you? Praise the Lord. Briefly now, as we close, this brings us to the last feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's there in Leviticus, the 23rd chapter. Let's notice now the type. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 34. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. Circle, if you would, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was also known as the Feast of Harvest. The Feast of Harvest. That's the picture. It's the great rejoicing when the harvest is finally finished. The oil and the wine and the grain has been completed and it's now gathered in. And the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Tabernacles has finally, finally come. And on that day, they would take branches and palms and they would wave them and rejoice as they make their way to Jerusalem as they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. However, listen carefully. Such rejoicing was wholly conditional upon survival on the Day of Atonement. You see, some of the rebellious members, those members who chose not to love, those members who chose not to repent of their sins, those members who chose not to put their trust in the blood of the Lord's goat, Jesus Christ, the Bible says they were cut off. They missed out on the last feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Guess what the antitypical fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles is? What do you think it is? It's the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is the great final ingathering of the harvest of souls. Because Jesus Christ is the first fruits. Because Jesus Christ rose from the grave. We have the assurance that when Jesus comes again the second time, that the harvest of souls that have said yes to Jesus, yes to live for him, they will raise. What a grand and awesome day that will be. And as all the children of Israel went forth rejoicing to Jerusalem, can you just see them there? Our Lord Jesus Christ, he's going to come again, and he's going to take us home to the heavenly Jerusalem. And I would say, oh, what a day that's going to be. What a wonderful, joyful day that will be to see loved ones and friends long separated with death. And so I want Annette, if she would, read for us now. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, as we close our messages today. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Amen. We're here together today to comfort one another with these words. You remember during the Old Testament Day of Atonement, there were those who chose not to repent of their sins, those who chose not to confess their sins during the daily service, and when they did not choose to trust in the Lord's goat, and so thus they were cut off and they were not present on the Feast of Tabernacles. According to the Scriptures, the Word of God, those who do not trust in Jesus Christ, those who choose not to repent of their sins, they will be cut off at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And because of our time, we're not going to read it. But you read the very next chapter, chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verses 1 through 6, and there you will see those who chose not to trust in Jesus Christ and repent of their sins, those people were cut off and destroyed at the second coming of Jesus Christ. The great antitype 
of the second coming of Jesus Christ is the Feast of Tabernacles. The second coming is the real Feast of Tabernacles. Christian friends, don't fix your heart on the joys of this world. The joys of this world are only imaginary joy. And there's enough of us that have gray hairs on our head. And you don't even have to have gray hairs on your head to express the true joy is not found in the world. It comes for a while, and then it's gone. It comes for a while, and then it's gone. Don't get discouraged because things aren't happening the way you would like them, and you're entering into difficulty, friends. That too will pass. Jesus will come through. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy will come in the morning, resurrection morning. The best is still yet to come. I believe with all my heart, in spite of what you see, in spite of what we're experiencing here at Sutherland, friends, the best is still yet to come if you trust in the Lord, if you follow his will. And so I ask you today, is your trust in the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb of God? Are you trusting in him? And as a result of that, are you choosing each and every day to confess your sins upon the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ? And friends, with that blessed hope, then we can sing the blessed hope. We have this hope that burns within our hearts, hope in the coming of the Lord. I want to thank you that the Spirit of God spoke to your heart to realize the times we're living in. This is the time, not just like any time, folks. This is the time to draw near, to confess our sins and to make things right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence. Thank you for the truthfulness and the honesty of your word. Thank you for the seven feasts of Israel that remind us that our Lord keeps his promises, that he will come through. And so, Father, as we are living, even as I pray, during the real Day of Atonement, if there's anyone here today who has sins that need to be confessed, help them to come to you and to fall and claim the blood of Christ and acknowledge Christ as the saving blood. Go with us now. May we live differently because you are our Savior and Lord. And we long and know that if we're right with God today, we're ready if Christ should come today. In Jesus' name, amen.